We're in this series, as, as Justin reminded you, of building a stronger church. And these things have been prayed on for months. In fact, we're probably approaching a year where we've asked God to make us a church like this, a church who knows how to pray, a, a church who is, is faithful to the word and never leaves the word, a church that knows how to be generous with his possessions, a church that's really intentional about reaching the lost, a church that knows how to be in a community together and serve one another. And, and those things, even though they seem like no-brainers, uh, they don't come without spiritual opposition. In fact, I'm kind of sensing it, to be honest with you. Uh, these are, these are um, very old, and yet Satan wouldn't want us to live that way. And so uh, we're going to continue to pray. And so the first week we talked about prayer, and I really have told you this already. I believe everything that we're going to do is connected to our dependency. Everything. And so uh, I know you hear it, and you hear it, and you hear it, and you kind of check it off because you don't think it applies to you. Uh, I'm asking the church to pray. I think it's exa- exactly what God wants us to do. And, and so I don't know what I have to do to encourage you to come on Wednesdays to test God, to see what he can do to reach your lost friends, to encourage your faith, and to move this gospel mission forward in our lives. And so I'm inviting you again. I'll do it again. I'm not... I'm not uh, uh, too proud to invite you again and, and, and ask you to join me at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. And we've got a couple hundred people that are praying right now. It's pretty intense and in, in a good way. And so uh, please be aware of that. Um, last week, by the way, I gave you a little tool called my giving potential or my gift potential. And so I just wanted to remind you of that. Uh, next week, we're going to give out commitment cards that lead us to Commitment Sunday on March 3rd. And so part of this process of us learning gospel perspective with money and possessions is to actually go through some of the exercises that we put in front of us. And so that gift potential that you got last week, I'm, I'm just reminding you uh, as a family, as a couple, to go through that together, to, to prayerfully consider what it is that God has you to commit to for our, our uh, expansion here on the campus. But it brings us to week four in our Growing a Stronger Church uh, series, and it is on intentional evangelism. Now, I coined that phrase not because uh, for any other reason, but to push against uh, all the methods that are out there. In fact, you, when you think of evangelism, my guess is the first thing you think about is all the different ways in which people have do it, or you have done it, or have been done to you, right? So uh, I, I remember one of the most poignant moments in my life. I was in the walking mall at Boulder, Colorado, and I met Jesus, now, not how you think. I met Jesus, okay? Uh, this was a guy that thought his mission, the best way to portray Jesus was to dress and act and look like Jesus, so he wore what was the equivalent of an adult diaper. And he had no other clothes on. He was walking around barefoot, darkest tan of anybody I've ever seen in my life, white beard all the way down to his navel and long white hair. And he stood in the middle of the square saying, I am Jesus Christ. So I had a little conversation with Jesus that day, and uh, we talked about what he thought. And typically when you think about evangelism, you go down um, the experiential road. You consider ways in which, or things that you see. Some people think tele-evangelists, like, oh my gosh, that's a bad word, don't say that. Um, some people think of evangelism explosion if you're that old. Some people think door-to-door, whatever. I'm not a door-to-door guy. In fact, I don't open doors when people ring the doorbell. I keep them closed. Um, I don't enjoy that. And so we have perspectives on it, and yet here we are introducing to the church, maybe not introducing, but maybe pushing into the church this idea of intentional evangelism. And let me just say up front, it's not a method. What we're talking about is a passion. 
It, it's, it's a perspective. It's a, it's a purpose. It's, it's driven from a heartbeat and not from like how to. There are lots of ways to share your faith. And so we're not talking about that today. We're praying that the Holy Spirit would interrupt our little life and push on us the desire and the heartbeat of God. And the heartbeat of God is that he loves lost people. And so if we're sitting here as Christians, we know that, right? Because he came after us. And so we need to share that, that heartbeat. And we talked about this last week in setting up really the, the, the attitude behind generosity. It all comes from a gospel perspective. And I said this to you, church, do you realize your treasure? So let me ask you that question again this morning. Do you realize your treasure? Do you realize you're carrying around with you the hope of mankind? the cure to their spiritual cancer. Like everyone's on a journey, they're all lost, and you know the destination. You know that. You know the words, you know the person, you know the, the, the problem and the solution. You've got it all in your mind if you're a believer sitting here this morning. So let me ask this question. Why does it seem then the church is so anemic when it comes to the mission of God? Why does it feel like we're not, like we're asleep at the wheel when it comes to this? Some people are, uh, they label the church. Well, they have the gift of evangelism, true. Some have an extra measure. But we're all called with the mission of Christ. And so we write this off for professionals and things like that. There was a, there's an evangelical article called uh, Evangelism Statistics that was published just this last January asking questions of the church. And it says that 95% of all Christians, now we have to use that loosely as always, um, have never seen someone come to faith through their witness. 95% have never seen their testimony or their efforts in evangelism bring about a changed life. 80% of Christians will never share their faith according to the survey. And most church growth, as you see it around our valley and our world, is based on church transfer, not, not, not people getting saved. So if there's a church down the road that's growing, it's typically that other people have left churches, other Christians, and finding the next cool hot spot. But it isn't people getting saved. And the other problem about evangelism, it seems like the rules change all the time, and it frustrates you. It frustrates me. Some people say, I mean, if you back up and look at the history of, of or last 60 years of American history and, and Jesus and telling the story of Jesus, there was the, let, let's just use this for identification, there was the Billy Graham method, 50s through the 80s. The idea that you could invite someone to something like a message or a, or a, a sermon or an event, and they would come and they would hear Jesus presented and make a, a conscious intellectual choice for Christ, and they would come to the church and belong to the community and then get involved in Jesus' causes. That was the, the predominant method for 30-some years, and then, and then that didn't work anymore, and so the church figured out that what people really wanted was community. More than anything else, they wanted to belong, and so the way to get people into Christ was to get them to belong first, so we'd invite them to community, we'd use that word, and they would come, and they would hear of Christ, and they'd get involved with Christ's causes. Well, now there's this new generation, and they've called it the, the generation of nuns. N-O-N-E-S. In fact, when people are writing out or filling out forms, surveys, or whatever, religious affiliation, this is the group of people that check the box, none. That's this group of people. The, the fastest growing group in America, 46 million and growing. In, in, in 1950, it was 2% of our populace. Now it's 18% and growing. That means one out of every five people you run into say, I'm not related to anything. I don't think anything religious when you talk about, about uh, faith. And so they say, of these people, the way to reach these people is through causes. 
And so what you do is not invite them to church or an event. You don't want to preach at them, and you don't want to invite them to community. They won't do that, but they will, they're, interested in, uh, they're interested in the world, and saving the world is a sense of uh, poverty and hunger. And so you can invite them into a cause, and if they come to the cause, and you might be able to get them to community. If you get them to community, you might be able to tell them about Jesus, and then they might get into Jesus' causes. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. All I'm saying is if you're a Christian, you've been walking with Christ any length of time, sometimes you want to pull your hair out because it's always changing. Like you don't know what you're supposed to do. You don't know how you're supposed to do it. And it, it, it probably cripples the church more than it, it inflames it for the truth. And so I say that out loud just to say I, I experienced that frustration. But I think the number one reason why um, the church is apathetic because it's a hard issue. Uh, they were doing a remodel of the Washington Monument some years ago. And they got in the lobby and they started pulling down wainscoting because they're going to replace it. And they found some graffiti. Now, this is a completely different kind of graffiti than we see in our day. But this is what they found on the walls under the wainscoting. Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one's soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. <laughs> Clearly, whoever wrote that, however long ago, uh, maybe in the 1800s or something, um, had a passion for the glory of God in souls coming to Christ. So where's our passion, church? Where's our heartbeat? And as always, I don't, I don't, I'm not speaking to any one individual. This is a corporate thing, and I love how the Holy Spirit can just adjust this thing for you and what you need. And so the question is directly to you. Where's your passion for the lost? Where's your passion for, for God's mission I think there are reasons uh, deep down why we don't engage with it. Um, here's some of them. I, I don't think we, for the most part, live with a kingdom mindset. In, in other words, living for the glory of God isn't first and foremost in our minds. It's not like we set out not to live for the glory of God. It's just that we don't set out to live for the glory of God. And because we don't make an intentional effort towards living for his glory, that means all these things that are part of his passions and his heartbeats don't give lived out in us. And so we're just the tyranny of the urgent. We're doing what we need to do, taking care of our problems all the time without much thought for the world around us. And so because it's out of sight, out of mind, we don't live in the glory of God that way. Now, there's some people that struggle with that. John Stott said this, the highest of missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated or perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate God's wrath, but rather, get this, zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is what John says, John Stott says, is the, the fire behind evangelism is God's glory. Like he is so preeminently great we can't help ourselves but to tell the story. And so maybe one of the reasons why we don't have uh, or share in this passion for the lost is because we live so much for us and we don't live for the glory of God. And again, I don't want to say that you wake up and say, here's what I'm going to do today. Me first, me first, me first, and God comes second. It happens without thinking, right? And so um, there's a possibility that we don't live for the kingdom um, here's a second reason I think we are anemic in our witness. It's because of fear of man. I mean, deep down in every person, we hate rejection. There's a, uh, there's a worship disorder uh, that we still fight. And that is this, that we want people to like us. <laughs> we want people to approve of us. 
And so uh, sometimes we back out of a conversation because we know the gospel, according to the scriptures, is an offensive message because it confronts man's inability in sin. And so when God comes and confronts sin, we're afraid that we're going to be stuck in the target zone and they're going to not like us because the message is offensive. And so there's a fear of man issue. I think some of us would say, here's why I'm not passionate about the lost or why I don't engage with the lost is because I don't know how. I never learned how, and I don't know what to say. And, and, and I understand that's what you might think, but it's not true. We, we have a, a phrase we use a lot around here. If you know enough to believe the gospel, you know enough to share the gospel. The gospel is a real simple message. In fact, the, the scriptures say it was, it was communicated in such a way that children could come and receive, right? And here's the, here's the message of the gospel. Your sin is grievous, and it is so bad It is so twisted, it so taints you, it affects your choices and your will because what it does is it bends you to evil all the time. In fact, Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and everybody falls, not just once, but continually short of the standard of God. We're always out of the game. And so the gospel starts with that that horrible news of our sin, um, but it brings us to the place of Jesus, that Jesus can be a our righteousness, and Jesus can be our sacrifice, that God in his holiness has to judge sin, and so he either judges you or he judges Jesus, and when you put your faith in Christ, he'll judge him. And so that unbelievable truth that you say you believe that makes you converted is also one you can share, but you struggle possibly with going, I don't know if I know how to say it. What if they ask me a question? What if they ask me the wrong question or the right question? What if I get stumped? What if it compromises my understanding of the gospel? What if, what if I get all messed up in my head? Isn't there some kind of secret code for, to sharing, you know, that unlocks it? And isn't this a department for the professionals? Isn't there some place here in the church where they have all the, you know, Christ sharers? I'm more of a servant. So there's some, there's some maybe some poor perspective about evangelism. The other possible reason why we're anemic in our witness is because of bad theology. And, and maybe it's not, maybe that's not the best way to say it, so let me try to redefine it. Maybe it's not complete theology. This, is, this one's sort of like prayer to me um, and for what I've heard from people. Uh, people say I don't pray, uh, I struggle to pray, and, and people who say that are typically people who believe in a reformed position of, of the gospel, meaning that God is sovereign in our lives, that you can't do anything, dead in your transgressions and sins, and God did everything. He made all the move on you, and he chose you, predestined you before the foundations of the world. That's that truth. And some people would look at the evangelism and say, well, what's the point? If God really is the sovereign elector of men's souls, and he's the one who moves, and no one can come unless the Father draws him, I don't really have to do anything. I can just sit back and let God do what he wants. But we forget and neglect the scriptures that tell us the means of how it happens, and the role that we play in his mission. Because there are things that the Bible says about what we do in this together um, is, is how God does it, right? And so there are, there are things that men are responsible for, even in God's sovereignty. Things like confessing and repenting and believing and, and sharing. And so sometimes it's not a complete theology or a bad one. Sometimes it's a, it's a lack of faith. And by that I mean you've tried it <laughs> and it just didn't go very well, or you met the most disagreeable person on the planet. I've had these moments in in my nature, in my youthful nature, um, with bad understanding of the doctrine. I used to argue for Jesus. I don't think you heard me. I used to argue for Jesus. 
And when I argue, I get lit up. You know what I'm saying? And my brow furrows and sweat starts coming and I get aggressive. I, I chase more people out of the kingdom than I ever invited people into the kingdom because for some reason when I met the disagreeable, I thought, man, I can, I can outwill them. It doesn't work, right? And so some of us have experienced either the pushback of people or the, or the dead end, what feels like a dead end conversation. We've tried, we didn't see results. And so we've stopped believing that God uses people to preach the message of hope to sinners of which they'll respond to. And so we don't do it. And then this is probably the biggest accusation against the church. Apathy. We don't care. I mean, the whole world is going to hell all around us. We have the hope of glory within us. We don't care. Um, and again, I'm not making any kind of particular, specific judgment of you. I'm just saying overall, there's a, there's a heart issue with us as the church. Uh, do you know um, the uh, illusionist comedians, Penn and Teller? Uh, we showed you this video a few years ago. Uh, Penn Jillette, um, received an invitation to come to Christ years ago. And uh, he describes from his vantage point um, uh, how ridiculous it is. If you believe that you have this unbelievable saving truth that you wouldn't share it. We got it in a video. It's a, it's a few minutes long. So watch this and see if it doesn't confront our apathy. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we... Uh, we talk to folks and, you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the, um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And, um, and he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show. And uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. And I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um... I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm... I'm sane, I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. 
And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and... Uh, that's real important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave you that book. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Jesus said in Luke 19 that he came to seek and save the lost. Over and over again in scripture, we, the church, redeemed ones, have been invited into that mission to seek and save the lost. And so um, maybe one of the reasons why we don't engage is because we stopped caring. I want to take just a few minutes this morning and give you kind of a, an overview of what the New Testament says about our role in God's mission. Um, I'm calling it five perspectives on God's mission. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 28, we're going to start there. And you're familiar with all of these. Hopefully when we're done, we have them all together and we can... Uh, Sense the Spirit's leading in, uh, in our desire to obey. Matthew 28, Jesus has uh, finished his earthly ministry. He has died. He has risen. He has shown himself to disciples. He's leaving them with this mandate. Now, uh, a command. Let's put it that way. Here's what you do, church. Here's what you do, disciples of Christ. Um, and he says in verses 19 and 20, here's the mandate for the church, God's mandate for the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, the main uh, verb in that whole passage is making disciples. And disciple making starts with sharing the hope that we have it isn't about inviting people to your Bible study or your small group and having them somehow acclimate themselves into your world. This is about sharing the hope out in the lost world. Jesus says, go and make disciples. You teach them about me, teach them about all that I've commanded you to do, but you bring them in, bring them in close. And so um, you've heard this said before, but everything that the scriptures calls us to do as a church can happen way more 
um, perfectly in heaven than this one activity. We can love without sin. We can love without fear in heaven. We can devote ourselves to the glory of God at the greatest levels possible. The only thing we cannot do is be the mouth of Christ to the lost world. So Jesus says to the church, make disciples. Get in it because that's the mandate of God. So if you like God's commandments, there's one, the first one. First perspective is God's mandate for the church. Here's the second one, God's heart for the lost. Luke chapter 15. Several stories that Jesus shares uh, to the right uh, in Luke chapter 15. L- let me give you the context in which Jesus is writing these. And by the way, we're going to look at five passages, so I hope that doesn't frustrate you flipping all over the place. But in, in Luke chapter 15, we get God's heart. So we've got God's mandate. It's one thing for us to see what God demands or expects of the church, the role that we are to play in it, but we get, to, we get a look at what God's intentions are, his heartbeat in, in chapter 15. It is a, it's a story uh, for the benefit of the Pharisees who were complaining and whining about Jesus' proximity to sinners and his effort towards them. Look at verses one and two. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and scribes grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Everything else that Jesus says after this is dealing with this judgmental religious elite looking at Jesus spending time with the sinners, the worst of the worst. And, and I won't take the time to read every story, but there are three particular stories, one of a lost sheep, one of a lost coin, and then the one we're probably most familiar with, the, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Uh, let me give you what I think these stories say about the heartbeat of, of God for the lost. This lost sheep, remember the story that the shepherd notices of his hundred sheep that one has wandered off. He leaves the 99. He goes on a pursuit of the one, remember? And he finds it in his joy. He puts it on his shoulders and brings it back and throws a party for his lost sheep. Uh, The story that Jesus shares is indicating really uh, God's love for the lost and God's rejoicing in finding the lost. There is this unbelievable, hard to get your mind around understanding of God's attitude towards us as sinners. God loves to pursue the lost, and he rejoices when they're found. You want to get close to the heartbeat of God and his mission? Well, get that. The second story he shares is of the one of the lost coin. This woman has 10 silver coins, and she loses one, and she goes on a mad, crazy, tear the house apart, hunt for it, right? Uh, There have been some who... um, have observed that back in the day, like a dowry for an engagement gift uh, in that day was like silver coins, 10 silver coins. So maybe that's what has happened here. Maybe this lady lost what was equivalent of her engagement ring. Now you can understand the kind of passionate pursuit, tear the house apart, try to find it. And when she finds it, she throws a party and, and rejoices. And so this story talks about God's effort for the lost. Not only his heartbeat, his love, but the work that he does to bring lost home and and the rejoicing in heaven that happens because of it. The prodigal son is the story of of a son who says, I want all the good things that the father has. I just don't want the father. I want to receive all the benevolence, so let's just transfer it into our life. Every sinner wants the good stuff God gives, like the rain and the sun and the food and our breath and the air that we breathe. We love that stuff. We just don't want his authority. So the prodigal son in this story just represents all of us who say, 
thank you very much, but no thank you to you. And he wanders off and squanders his unbelievable inheritance only to come to his senses and come home. And the father receives him back, forgives him, and his patience restores him and makes him a son. And so we see the heart of God there too in his patience and his forgiveness and his rejoicing over sinners. So church, stop and think. Jesus describing to a religious group of people that thought hanging out with sinners was bad news. Jesus shares these stories to say that's exactly the heart of Christ. That's exactly the heart of God for lost people. Love and commitment and rejoicing and intention and patience with lost. So we have the mandate of of God to to make disciples. We have the heart of God, and that is to, to love and to seek let me give you the third perspective. It's God's style for his mission. Second Corinthians chapter five, if you turn there, again, a little bit farther to the right. This is the apostle Paul writing on um, our role. And I just described it as God's style for his mission. In Second Corinthians five, we're gonna read 17 through 20. You'll get the point. There's a couple of key phrases and words here that describe God's style for our role in his message in this world. But here's what he says, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, you should be underlining this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are, what's it say? Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. That's Jesus who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's style is for us to be his representatives, to be ambassadors. Ambassadors go to a foreign country and they acclimate. They, they don't go to a foreign country and, and just post the Americana. They go there and become part of the society there, but they're on mission and they represent their president, their king. They go there to tell that story. And so we are as well, guys, ambassadors of this message. We live out there. We work out there. They're, they hang around us. They spend time with our children. We are representatives because we have this ministry now, according to Paul, of reconciliation, the reconciliation of sinner and God together, reconciled. And so we represent him, waking every day, putting our feet on the floor zone. Today is a day to represent Jesus. Today is a day to tell the story of Jesus. Today's the day to live like Jesus in a world that doesn't know Jesus. And so we are ambassadors. That's God's style for his his mission. Here's the fourth perspective, God's influence in the world. Matthew chapter 5 if you go back to the left, Matthew 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It is the uh, very familiar passage, but I want to take everybody there just in case you've not been here before. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, this is God's influence in our world. And hopefully when we're all done with these five perspectives, you're going to get kind of the snapshot of our place and our role and our style in this ministry that God has called us to. So in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, you are are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Two illustrations Jesus uses to describe our influence. God's influence through us in this world. He uses salt and light. Salt does a couple of things. I like salt, by the way. I use salt on everything. Um, Salt brings flavor, and salt brings a preservative. Salt has this pushback effect on uh, corruption and decay. That's what salt does. Um, I was watching, for whatever reason, this guy was making bacon, and the amount of salt that was used in the making of bacon and ham, I was surprised at. But he was making the case for the preservative nature of salt. And that's, that's kind of why Jesus uses this, that it's a, it's a flavor agent and it's a preserving agent. Light, obviously, pushes out darkness. Wherever light is, darkness isn't. And so we are the light of the world. It leads and it exposes. Um, John Stott, I love how he writes He talks about how this salt and light, the church living on mission with a purpose, with passion, has this changing effect or this influencing effect on society. And listen to this and tell me if you don't think it's true. Let me put it this way. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there is no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is where is the light? If the meat goes bad and becomes inedible... There is no sense blaming the meat, for that's what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so, if society deteriorates and its standards decline till it becomes like a dark night or a stinking fish, there is no sense in blaming society, for that is what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves and human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing their world? That's a good question. Because the scriptures, Jesus says, listen, when you're out there, you have this preserving, flavoring aspect to you and an exposing, leading part to you and being salt and light. And so if you look around in your world, your specific little sphere, and you don't like it, you need to ask yourself the questions. Are you being God's agent in that space? Are you his influence in, in the world? And I think for the church, the way, we, the way we neighbor, the way we do business, the way we don't do business, probably better said, um, is the way in which we are the salt and light. Let me give you one more of uh, perspective, the fifth perspective on God's uh, mission for us, and that is God's voice in the message. I want you to turn to the right to Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, Paul um, is talking about the inevitability. Now, we're building a case here, right, of of our role from a commandment position and an influence position and a heart of God position. Now we're ending up with this is really some of the methods of the mission or the voice in the message, I'm calling it. In Romans chapter 10, the apostle is writing um, about how we preach or speak, and he says this in verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to, are they to preach unless someone is sent? 
as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, God's voice, whether you like it or not, comes out of your mouth when you preach the good news. It is, it is proclaiming, it is telling, it is explaining, it is reasoning with people the message of the gospel that includes the bad story of their sin and inability and God's solution through Christ alone for them. And it means, church, watch, listen very carefully, no one gets saved unless someone preaches. No one comes to a rational conclusion about a redeemer and atonement. Nobody gets anything unless you tell them. And Paul's point in this thing is how are they going to know unless someone says it? How are they going to know unless we preach it? So here's the awkward part, potentially. So far, you're tracking. Okay, it's a mandate, Matthew 28. Okay, it's the heart of, it's the heart of God in Luke 15. Okay, it's, it's the style of being ambassadors and an influence. I love that. And salt and light, I can just be good in the midst of bad, and maybe that'll have a preserving, a lighting effect. But, but here we have now the bigger part of this story, the part where we have a tendency to bail out. And that is, we got to preach. And you can just do this. I know what you're doing. I'm not a preacher. That's not how Paul is using this. It's, it's proclaiming. It's broadcasting. It's heralding the gospel. You believe that? It's heralding the gospel. So let me ask you a couple really, really simple. They're, they're going to be so simple. They're just crazy, stupid questions. Do you love Jesus? We'll try that again. Back up. Maybe you didn't hear me. Do you love Jesus? That's good. I appreciate a cheer every now and then. Do you love Jesus with everything you are? Now, let me just stop. Before you answer, some of you go, it wasn't this week. I get that, okay? Let's say, based on who Jesus is, the answer is what? Yes. Yeah. Is it the best news you ever heard in your life? Okay. Now we're in the position of saying it. And Paul says they're not going to know it unless you preach it. And every one of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are preachers when it comes to the gospel. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be a five-point outline person. But you need to be able to share the hope that you have, right? Most of the believers I know struggle with sharing their faith. And I think there's some things we forget about evangelism that are, at least if we identify them and say they're a part of our experience, they might help us in the midst of taking this wonderful, cheering news of the gospel and the mission and the preaching aspect of this and, and continuing to, to be on fire in this way for Christ. So let me give you some things that we forget about evangelism that might help us in this process. You know it's not about winning an argument, right? <laughs> I used to think it was. I used to think it was about winning an argument, but it's really about preaching this gospel. Paul said this to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I think this is, this is the Apostle Paul. Now, listen very carefully. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Came proclaiming nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says this, in weakness, fear, and trembling. Okay, there's the standard. Who couldn't do this? Without wisdom or lofty speech, scared out of your wits, that's how Paul came to the churches to tell about Jesus. So everyone qualifies, right? Smile. Everyone qualifies. It's not about winning an argument because the power isn't 
in you and necessarily the power is the word of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about we don't ever want to move because there's no other power to change lives than the word of God. And so the power is there. Uh, Here's another um, thing we forget about evangelism. The Holy Spirit is better with men's hearts than we are. You know, I, uh, again, I love a good argument, but, but somehow the, the intention of the Spirit of God doing the work in the heart of man in the timing that God uh, has set aside is, is amazing. He does the prompting. He's the one that does the pursuing. He's the one that, that puts us in context and puts us in those positions of opportunities. And so just like Jesus came to seek and save the lost, the Holy Spirit is actively seeking and saving the lost. Do you believe that? And so... The Holy Spirit's way better at this than we are. So in your evangelism, in, your, in understanding the, the mandate, call, command of it, understanding the heart of it, understanding the influence of it and all those types of things, just, just remember this. The Holy Spirit is doing that work. He invites you in and you will be successful. Here's another thing I think we forget about evangelism. And let me have to explain this one a little bit, but the most passionate, most effective evangelist um, and evangelism comes from those people who've experienced it. Now, you would think that every Christian um, would just be unbelievably passionate for the hope that they have found. And, and I know this is true. The best evangelists I know are the most broken. People who get their sin, you know, the world is, is they're lost and they're confused and they think that somehow your religion or religion itself or good people or people who've sorted some things out can't relate whatsoever. Here's where we all relate, church. Every one of us, we have more gore in our lives than we would dare anybody to know. We're broken and we're sick too. And it was only apart from the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we live. And so the best evangelism happens from broken people people who know what they would be apart from Christ, people who know of all the things he's redeemed us from and out of, all the, all the consequences that we should be in, that we're no longer in because the gracious nature of God for sinners who confess Christ, we should. We should be the best evangelists in the world because we're no different than they are except we're saved. Do you understand? We're sinners who've received the grace of God. Here's another thing I think we forget about in evangelism. It means that we will make ourselves and others uncomfortable sometimes. And I can't, I don't, you know, I wish I didn't have to tell you that, but that's the way it is. We have a message that the scriptures make it really clear that's offensive. But because it, it confronts people's idols, it, conf- it confronts their gods, it confronts their pride, and it puts us in the context with people sometimes that we don't relate to that well. And so there's an uncomfortableness to this a little bit. And so sometimes we're in the context of others, whether it's someone who is homeless or someone who has way more than we do, people with baggage, and it's uncomfortable to talk about. Jesus hung out with sinners. The king of the universe came to hang out with sinners. And, by the way, there's nothing more uncomfortable in all the world than to take a hard look at sin, your sin, and God in it. So you, you need to have a little bit moxie when you're having conversations about wonderful good news to know that it always starts feeling like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was true of me or of him. Another truth about evangelism that I think we forget, and that is that the gospel is their only hope. 
Peter says, and we studied this when we were looking through 1 Peter, um, that to be always ready to share the hope that we have within us, to be prepared all the time. The only real, lasting, forever, eternal, non-conditional hope of men is Jesus Christ. There is, no other, there is no other answer. And even though they might look like what they need is a place to live, and that might be a true practical need, what they need is a life. They, they don't live. They're broken and twisted in their sin and stuck just like we were. And so the only hope, their only hope is Jesus. So just, just to put it on us as a condition, wherever the world, and I mean by that, the church starts to chase its own tail to try to find the, the, the way to unlock men's hearts. <laughs> it's always been the gospel. It's always the truth that men, sinners can be saved and their only hope is Jesus. Another thing I think we forget is, is opportunities are everywhere. So as opposed to us sitting here going, well, I, you know, if I have to stop and think about an unbeliever in my life, hmm, I don't know if I could think of one right now. Um, they're everywhere. They're in your home. They're in your neighborhood. They're, they're at the office. They're in the church. They are family members at a distance. They are everywhere. And they require, on our part, a creativity, a story sharing, an intentionality. That's why we called it uh, intentional evangelism. It includes time. It includes tension. It includes all the things that are a part of these opportunities. They won't happen on themselves, by themselves. So we walk into them. Here's another one. Not everyone will believe. Don't you wish that everyone you talk to would kiss you on the forehead and say, thank you, I love Jesus? <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. God called Isaiah in Isaiah 6. I want you to go and tell a message of, of redemption and repentance to a people who won't hear you. And sometimes we wish, we wish all we could get is wins and we don't want to do the work and have it not produced and so we go, no, I'm not interested. I'll wait till it's clear. I'll wait till they're, they're coming after me. And yet the reality is that not everyone will believe. God sends us to everyone everywhere. And God has not put a cross on the forehead of those who will believe. So we've got to talk to people. We've got to share a hope. And then one last one, okay? Um, things that I think we forget in evangelism. The sin that Christ saved us from is the same sin that condemns all these people we're talking to. So it creates in us... Two, two attitudes, I think. One is a humility, and one is an intentionality, a motivation. We are in the same boat apart from the mercy of God. We aren't any smarter. We're not a more attractive people to God. God didn't pick us for who we were or what we could do. God saved a sinner who was dead. That's our story. And so just like these people around us, it should create in us a brokenness for this story of theirs. It's always been God's amazing grace. Amen, church? Amen. So why is it important? We put it in the six essential elements. You might go, well, it's because it's the mandate. It's Matthew 28. Let me, let me give you a couple other ways to think about the reasons why we need to be intentional about our witness. Um, because I believe nothing stagnates a church's heart like it's apathy towards the lost. Have you ever been at a church where you feel like, ah, oh, man, there's just nothing going on there. There's no life. There's no, there's no heartbeat. They're, they're going nowhere, and they don't even know it. They are so clueless. Well, nothing stagnates a church's heart like its apathy towards its calling. We were left here on a mission. 
So as much as we are living that mission, we will see fruit from that. I love those testimonies from the baptism. I love watching those because every one of them represents somewhere, a series of people, the church, involved in sharing the hope of glory with them, having the Holy Spirit prompt them, move them, draw them unto salvation to have them willingly obey by saying to the world and the church, Jesus is mine. I love every story, 30 lives, just demonstrated that. Your life too, if you're sitting here as a believer, you represent that. But if, if your faith and if your church experience feels stagnant, my guess is you don't have any moving water in your life. And the moving water of that life is your mission to follow in the mission of Christ, to tell people about Christ. I think nothing retards the holiness of the church more than its self-centeredness. And you know this, right? Every flesh in tendency in our heart wants to lean towards us and away from the kingdom, Right? Every one of them do. So I would rather be happy and content and satisfied. I'd rather have things the way I want them when I want them that way. And so I'm just saying that nothing nothing keeps us from this holy progression that God wants to produce in the hearts of believers than our commitment to our own selfish living and reaching out to others, sharing the hope of, of Christ with people that sometimes we're uncomfortable with is a way to see holiness. God will expose our own sin and our own desires for him more and more through that. Let, let me give you a positive one of why it's important. Nothing grows our faith in fire like witnessing the, the miracle of new birth. It just, there's nothing like it. It reminds you of where you were. It reminds you of the amazing story of it. Sometimes we walk in Christ 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and now it's by the numbers. It's so predictable and so knowable and so familiar that we forgot the glory of it and the wonder of it. Well, nothing will spur on the church to fire and enthusiasm. Nothing will get you to prayer meeting more than you're absolutely convinced that, that God will save people by your faithful prayers. God will do stuff like that. So through our journey through these essential elements, we have wrestled with ways to get the church to respond. And I'm going to ask you to respond right now in a, in a way we don't normally do. Um, the prayer uh, discussion was about praying together. And some of you have taken us up on that. The reading a challenge is coming in April where we're going to read Romans together. Generosity has some pragmatism in too because those offering boxes are by the doors today. And hopefully you heard the Holy Spirit last week and you know what it is to live faithfully in your generosity. But we're uh, asking you now to consider your role in the witness the mandate, the call, the heartbeat of Christ for the lost people around you. So we want to take uh, just five minutes right now and, uh, and start sharing names. Now, this is going to feel a little bit different. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a phone, I want you to take out your cell phone right now. It's okay. I give you permission. If you don't have a cell phone, the response tab in the bulletin, I want you to take that out. We've created a uh, text and phone line where we want to collect names. I'm asking you for three names of people that you... Um, Pray for, desire for them to know Christ. Um, you can write more if you want or less if you don't know. Um, somebody in your family, somebody at work, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody you know here. Uh, we're asking for everybody to submit three names. You can give the first name if you don't want to give the full name. It doesn't matter to me. And here's what you do. You text uh, to this number, 411247. 
And then in the text field, you just write my, M-Y-3, my three, and then the names, and then send it. Um, you'll get a confirmation uh, text from us tonight, later today. And we're going to collect these, and these are going to go up to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and we are going to bang on heaven's door for your friends and your family. We're going to be serious about reaching the lost people that we know, and uh, so I think the best way for us to start that is to start collecting names. So please uh, text again to this number, 411-247-MY3 in the text field and in th- your names, whatever names there are. If there are two, three, four, five, I don't care. And we'll pull these all together. And uh, we'll start praying for them. Now, I'll give you a couple of seconds to do that. This will stay up for a while. See how to do this. Now, listen, church. Your job isn't to text names. We're texting names so that the church can pray for the names you will now pursue. And you will pray for and you will preach to. This can't just be another lesson we don't do. Uh, they're, they're, uh, we have the hope of glory. We have freedom from sin. We have forgiveness and life forever in us, and we get to give it away. And so um, we want everybody to participate in this. And so uh, we will be praying for you and for those names. And we're asking for you guys to, to uh, think of ways that God will use you now to begin the conversations about Jesus and hope. Okay, do you guys understand? Again, text to the number 411247. In the text field, you write MY, my three, three, the, the number three, and then the names. And uh, hit send, and we'll get those names and collect them. If you don't have a phone, uh, we try to make this easy. You can take the response tab in the bulletin and just write it down, drop it in the offering box, and we'll collect them that way. So everyone should be able to, to contribute to this. Some of you are texting for the first time. It's like <laughs> I'm watching you doing a science project. <laughs> you won't launch any missiles, I promise. Just, and if you're confused, just go ahead and grab the response tab. Um, church, look up for a second as you continue to wrestle with your texts. Um, do you know how important this is? Do you? Do you know how important it is for us to fulfill the mandate of Christ, the heart of our Lord, in the influence of the gospel around us? And it comes through our open mouth saying, it's Jesus. It, it, just like that, that uh, Penn Jillette video, how much do you have to hate somebody to know you have their solution to their problem and not say it? And I understand there's issues of courage and insecurity and all sorts of things. That's why we're going to pray, and we're going to pray for those names. And I'm praying that God comes around the backside and initiates from them to you. But we need to share the hope that we have with them. We've got a couple of tools before you leave this morning that we want to put in your hands, again, in the bookstore. Uh, This is a book by uh, J. Max Stiles. It's called Marks of a Messenger. Um, This is a book that just shows you how to turn conversations into the gospel, turn them into Jesus. It's a really, really good book. It's in the bookstore this morning. We also know that some of you need prompts and, and would like that. We've got a brochure that we're selling in the bookstore. This is a great tool. It's called, it's called the story, and it begins with creation. It goes all the way through the problem of the fall, the rescue of Jesus, and the restoration of all things. This is an amazing tool. So if you're going, I just need help to know how and where to go, then go to the bookstore and get a handful of these. You can leave these with people. They can go on a desk. They're really well done, um, but some tools for you uh, to start 
using that. Um, as I pray for us, as we leave today, I want to just pray. I don't know the names. Let's pray for these folks. Let's pray for our hearts that we'd have the heart of Christ in the, in the gospel story. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your pursuit of us and the gospel that changed us. God, I pray for us as your church that we would not be sleeping at the wheel when it comes to what you left us here to do, the mission of telling the hope of Jesus to the lost world around us. God, we wrote down a lot of names today, hundreds of names of everyone participated, friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers who uh, don't know Christ. So God, we pray, we pray for them in the power of Jesus Christ that you would draw them to yourself and save them by the grace that comes through Christ alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.